Hello and welcome to Cruising Through History. My name is Xander. I'm sitting here with Scott Cruz. Scott, where are we cruising through today? Well, Xander, I thought maybe I would pick up where we were talking about historical mysteries from last time, where we were talking about Stonehenge, and I would talk about the Nazca lines in Peru uh, and geoglyphs in general. Now, geoglyphs are designs that are made on the ground, um, whether on a hill or on a flat surface, any kind of figure. And there's like a positive geoglyph is one that's raised above the ground, like a if you had like a circle of stones or something. And a negative pe- uh, geoglyph is one where you put something in the ground. I mean, it's fairly obvious that there's two those two different things. Because like Stonehenge, the Nazca lines have been mysterious for a long time and, of course, have allowed themselves to open to many interpretations, some out there, some on the ground, as it were. So, yeah, I thought, oh, that would be an interesting thing to discuss because not only are there these geoglyphs in Peru, which are the most famous ones, I think, but there's other ones around the world that are similar. So so I thought that would be a good place to look. You know. So the, these are things that either indented or raised above the ground somehow, some way, that right. form some form of pattern that right. we may not know exactly what that means. Right. And the reason there was there's a lot of confusion with the Nazca lines is because when they started out, they were on the ground. And in that area of the world, the the top soil is like a reddish brown. It's pebbles. It's it's pretty it's pretty uh, desiccated. There's not a lot of water there right now. There was at the time. And so when you pull those that reddish brown topsoil off or those pebbles, there's a yellowish underneath. So that's where you get the contrast where you can see it um, on the ground. And they really started out as just straight lines all across the a lot, all across the, the desert floor. And it's weird when you're up and viewing it from above, you just see all these lines going all over the place. And it was later that they started doing figures. So like they, from above, it just looks like lines. Like that's... Yes. But when you... I guess kind of describe how these figures in this instance might look or like what what would they have seen in those figures? Well, they they do have um some that were they were zoomorphic designs, a hummingbird, spider, a fish, a condor, a monkey, a heron, a lizard, a dog, a cat, and even some human ones. And I guess those came later. Now we're talking a time period about 200 B.C. to 500 A.D. Now, what's interesting, though, is they now break the Nazca lines down, even though they still call them Nazca, into two phases. Because in 2018, someone discovered, using a drone, that there was a petroglyph on the side of a hill instead of on the desert floor. Now, the thing that some people always say is, well, you can only see these from the air, so why did they make them? That's not entirely true. You can see them from the foothills if you're standing above. You don't necessarily have to be in the air. It helps because you see them a lot better. Um, But they found these on the side of a hill. They found a a cat, a civet cat or something like that. And there was another one uh, of something. But they noticed it didn't have the same style as the Nazca lines. So after much 
comparison, they discovered that there was a culture called the Paracas culture before the Nazcas in that region, and that these were their geoglyphs. Okay, so there's... It's almost like kind of when we talk about Stonehenge, uh, tons of people over time doing the same thing. Right. Uh, but this is different people over relatively shorter period of time, but there are different aspects to it. Like the Nazca lines themselves, they may be one culture, then they found this other one that's, oh, another group and, did and, that. And how they did that was in the 1930s, they discovered these Paracas tombs that had all these textiles in it. And they also had mummies in it, which I thought was kind of interesting. And these textiles, some of that style matched up to some of the style that was on the, on the geoglyphs. So now they break it down into two phases, the Paracas phase, which was like 400 to 200 BC. And then, but they don't know what happened to the Paracas. Somehow they've either became the Nazcas or they just sort of melded. I think we talked about this with Stonehenge too, and different people would come into an area, either it would drive the other ones out or they would just sort of assimilate into it and they would just become something new. Yeah. So I think that's what you have. Now, where it throws everybody off is why did they go from straight lines to suddenly making figures? And, and of course, the Paracas ones are all figures. There's no just straight lines. They're just, they're just there, mm-hmm. you know. And I think there's been some theories that for the Paracas it was sort of a territorial marker. That's why they put it on the side of a hill. I mean, I guess that's a good guess. <laughs> but, I mean, that makes sense because you'd want to, like, kind of mark it and be visible from a long range. So, I mean, right. that would make sense. Um, but the ones that are on the ground, I guess. Well, there's been a lot of theories. Some are sort of like Stonehenge, um, where there was a theory that the, the straight lines sort of matched up to the solstices. Like, this was another sort of astronomical thing. Um, but that was that didn't have a lot of evidence. That was kind of disproven in some ways. And then in, I think about 1977, there was another one who, uh, an archaeologist, I believe, had a theory. But he had, like, three different reasons. And they could all make sense. Now, in that area, there used to be buildings, of course, and there used to be these complexes. So they're wondering if these were like pathways, like ritual pathways leading to these places. And another theory that I think to me holds is a little more understandable. Both the Paracas and the Nazcas were really good with irrigation and, and water was a big thing. In fact, the Nazcas built underwater aqueducts that some of them are still being used. So there was a theory that one of the lines, if you look at it, it goes right to the mountain where, and I'm doing this straight thing with my hand, (laughs) it goes right to the mountain where their water would originate from. And I thought that one, I think, makes a little more sense because you might use these in rituals to, or as trails, these religious sort of pilgrimages you'd make and use these trails. Now, why they started making monkeys and hummingbirds and condors Maybe it was still ritualistic, mm-hmm. and they needed to do that. So that's one of the theories that has to do with the water, and that these would lead there, and then people would process through these trails. Um, but I, it's amazing to me that these were there for a thousand years before anybody ever even saw them. <laughs> yeah, I wonder. That's always weird when you 
these giant kind of um this one isn't a monument of course but you have these kind of giant feats of design and no one notices it until way later it wasn't until about the 1920s and i thought this was interesting because they were first noticed by a peruvian um, civilian and military aircraft well of course up until about the early 20th century you didn't have any aircraft really but it was an archaeologist in 1927 who was hiking through the foothills who noticed them now this tells you that you could see some of them from an elevated position you didn't yeah. have to be in the air so it could be just fine that that's pretty legitimate that you know you could just see it from the foot and as of 2020 i think they have found 80 to 100 more oh because now they can use drone technology to ah. fly around and you and some of them are fading and this is becoming another issue mm-hmm. what really has helped them not erode is that there's lime a certain amount of lime in the in the in the uh, digging and when you get morning dew or morning moisture that seals them so a lot of them have been protected against erosion because i'm thinking why didn't these just all erode at some point we would never even see them and some have some of the hillside ones are really hard to make out you really have to sort of draw a figure Mm -hmm. and uh but also like stonehenge it's been proven that you could build these things or make these things you didn't really build them using technology that they probably had like stakes and you could just take a small group of people and put stakes around in fact um, they found a stake at one of the sites so they carbon dated it and that's how they got this sort of not ballpark number we don't know exactly for sure but Mm -hmm. of what what time it was done in and so um but like yeah like stonehenge though where people try to prove you can do it with the technology they did that there too and it was provable yeah it's a little easier there you're not moving two thousand ton stones or whatever yeah this seems more like a feat of imagination almost rather than necessarily the tools required because i mean i don't know if you've ever tried to walk somewhere in a specific pattern um without viewing it from above or even if you've i don't know if you've ever played like a mario party game they're like mazes that Mm -hmm. you can view the above for a second and then you have to figure out where to get out and you're just like i look through a second right and maybe that is where you know it's interesting you said that about a maze Mm -hmm. because it makes me think well maybe even when they drew them as figures people still would use the trail even when you had like a monkey or a condor and if you ever get a chance just look them up because it, it is pretty amazing that they made these huge things and and you're right the but the first european to see them was a conquistador in like 1553 mm-hmm. and he called them trail markers which i thought was interesting because they they saw them as trails because of course they were on the ground they just saw these things another another spaniard who had visited like in 1567 he said they were roads because he said i saw these ancient ruins in peru which tells me that those buildings were still kind of up but they were in ruins now they're gone they're long gone archaeology is what's helped which really if you ask take the last two episodes we've done we can call it cruising through archaeology and geology (laughs) that's what i'm doing here but he called them roads and i mean you'd think they're roads when you look at them on the ground Mm -hmm. so but you don't until you go above you might not notice a pattern now 
we talked about this with with Stonehenge, and I think at some point we were like, well, crop circles are one of those things that are kind of similar to this. But what are some of the more, I guess, out there theories for what they are well, versus what they and or like where they came from? Right. So you and I. Um, in other episodes have discussed pseudo-history, pseudo-science. Mm-hmm. There's certainly no shortage of that here either. And uh, it all started 1968. I think he was Swiss or German. Author named Eric von Doniken, which some of our listeners may know because he's he was quite famous. He wrote a book called Chariot of the Gods. Now you can kind of see where this is going. Because really, if you stand up and you look down on them, it looks like an airport. Now, any line, but I want to stress that any line, if you draw them in certain ways, can look like landing sites. That's very true. That doesn't mean they are. And so he, his theory was that all these things are connected. The pyramids, these Nazca lines, Stonehenge, because the aliens built this, brought this culture. Now, it's not hard for people to draw a line on the ground. I mean, uh, I don't know. I, <laughs> I, I would. I, I'm bad at drawing things. Well, okay. that's true. <laughs> but, you know, like I say, they, they, they could have used their tools to. But his whole thing was that this. But he's been discredited, of course. But, of course, like other pseudo-historical books, when we talked about Gavin Menzies and the discovery of China, China discovering America, his books were million sellers. And mm-hmm. I remember this because they were still selling when I was when I was young, you know, and, and the theory's always been that this was an ancient landing strip, that these aliens came, they gave this technology to the people that were living there, they left, and then they never came back. And so they built these things. But even if, let's say that even if these were meant to be seen by the gods mm-hmm. in their culture, other cultures build stuff that way too. I mean, we build cathedrals high. So that doesn't necessarily mean they were trying to commune with aliens. In their eyes, their sky gods or whoever could have been looking at these. That's how they thought. Mm-hmm. There, but yes, there's plenty of outlandish things that have been uh, put on this. But one thing that happened was once this was this guy's books were published, thousands of people started visiting this site. It's sort of like when everyone started going to Stonehenge and it, more people went to see it. But I think there's more earthbound explanations for a lot of this stuff. Yeah. It's you, not as complicated as we think. And you've already said that the technology is, makes sense, like more than Stonehenge even, per se, in doing it. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, those theories that, well, people could see it from the hillside. Um, people could, it could have been a marker for territory. It makes a lot more sense potentially why they're there right and and then that's what they think with the paracas culture that they were saying this is where this is our territory here Mm -hmm. and they later found uh in uh, a little south of this same area in peru more toward the coast uh, uh, i think it's called the chinches glyphs so this was a different culture now they're not as numerous but even they made some. So there must have been this shared knowledge of doing these things, which tells me maybe they were ritualistic if they were being passed along mm-hmm. and to other people, and other people were using it for that purpose. Yeah, it's 
I mean, there's certainly a practical aspect to it, it seems. Yes. I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised if you could even... St- I mean, one thing that hasn't come up that I was surprised at, given the their irrigation knowledge and knowledge of water and how to hydraulics and that, I would have thought these were would, would act more as, like... Uh, Waterways, almost? Yeah, like you could put water down them because they're... They're sunk in the ground, so you can almost you can almost shoot water off. Mm-hmm. Maybe they were meant for irrigation because they were. I mean, there was a little more rain there than there is now, and that was always worrisome now because it's so dry. But the thing, the dryness is what's kept them probably viable to find. Yeah. So. Huh. And so, I I, I guess where to go from here is. I mean, we have these. We have these creations in the ground that people have used. And now, I mean, we're talking thousands of years later. Right. We're discovering what they are, what they could have been. Right. Similar to where Stonehenge, um, it sounds like there aren't, there isn't like a oral history to them at all. Or something that's been passed down that's like, right. these may have been part of this or the people that had it were this. It seems like right. almost the original users were either moved on, right. didn't really explain anything. And that's some of the problem with the Nazca thing, too. There's not a lot of oral because, of course, the people are gone. Mm-hmm. And, uh, right. So, to me, the Nazca is a little easier to understand because you don't have the, the, the whole process of moving stones. Yeah. <laughs> that's... I mean, I think I, I saw I saw something on Stonehenge where um, the story used to be that Merlin had moved the stones from Ireland to to the Salisbury Plain, and then they put them up. So. That makes sense. It does. <laughs> but but here we're, we're talking more the because uh, these are digging, or more so, right? Yeah, carving into the ground, mm-hmm. which why I thought of the irrigation, because it seems to me that both of these cultures are very advanced with those methods and if they knew how to harness that well maybe that's what part of these were maybe you could run water down into various fields because maybe it because if you go there now it's it's totally parched it's barren Mm -hmm. but within this barrenness there's this little area that's forested it looks really weird because in the middle of this desert there's this forested area and it's it's shrinking but it's still there, and, and I know that there have been um, botanists and stuff who have gone there to study it. And so they think that more of the valley looked like this long ago. Now, you still had to have the, where they, where they carved the, the lines. So it gets a little confusing sometimes because you're thinking, well, if they, how could they carve it? If... And on the hillside, that had grown over. That's why it's hard to find those hillside uh, glyphs. <laughs> I, see, I see you have a quizzical look on your face. Now, because that was more forested as well. Now, I'm because I'm you know my imagination. I'm imagining this is very viewable, very easy to see from a higher elevation. But if right. you're putting a forested area into there, these lines might not be easy to see from a distance if it's in a right. forested zone. Like and, that. and they also think that because at some point some of the glyphs were partially erased. So of course this adds to the mystery. Did and what happened to the Nazcas? There's no more. They're they're gone. Mm-hmm. And what they think happened was uh, there was a flood, 
and they may have moved on to another area and 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 just like all these other mysteries it just stops there's no more glyphs no one's drawing anymore in peru that they can find yeah they're all kind of in this area but then at some point they're done which tells me that people either moved on or assimilated into something else because but wouldn't they have taken that knowledge with them? See, this is the this is the sort of the juicy part of it. That where did they go and why did why did it stop? Yeah, because you'd imagine if this is some if this had some form of religious purpose, right? Which they, they, they think it does. That. Yeah. They would they would unless they completely assimilated to another belief system, they would continue that where they go. Right. If it had a practical use, you'd think the practice would continue unless they found something more practical. Um, that yes, that's true. So that it just stops right. is strange. And you know we have line drawings in the United States, hmm. and I didn't know this. Oh, they're called the Blythe geoglyphs, and they are in southeastern California, in the Colorado desert. And they are um, lines, just like the Nazca's. Now I'm not saying there's a there's a connection. I'm just saying we have them. But what's really weird about these is that even though there's a lot of lines, there's human figures, but only the human figures are found close to the river. The lines are all over the place, but the Colorado River runs through that. It's like on the border of Arizona and California. The, the, the human figures that they've seen drawn are by the river. They're nowhere else. They're just by the river. And they date these from 900 to 1200 A.D., so they, these are after the lines in Peru. I don't think there was a migration. I'm not saying that at all. I mean, I don't know. I'm now expert on this. But it's just, I thought it was funny because I didn't even know we had these in the United States. And you do see, like, petroglyphs in the Southwest that ancient uh, Indian tribes had made. So it's like, was this knowledge being somehow getting up from there to here? I don't know. It's, it's, it's sort of fascinating to me. Well, information definitely, and I'm, I'm, I'm calling it information here because it's certainly a technique on how they do it. Right. Whether the why, I mean, I'm not talking about the why, but the how. Um, information has a tendency to spread, and all it takes is one person with knowledge to spread information. Well, really, and, and really, you can see that um, uh, the, the inhabitants of what's, what was North and South America, I guess we call it in Central America, they had trade, you know, they had trade links. Mm-hmm. That knowledge could have been carried on that way, too. It's not really beyond that. It doesn't surprise me. I know for some people it's hard to explain, well, why did this, you know, why were they doing the same thing this other thing was doing? They could be independent. Or maybe somehow the knowledge spread, and we mm-hmm. just don't really know what the vehicle for that was. I don't want to go too far off on a tangent. but And also the other place that has a lot of glyphs is um, England, calling England again. Okay. Uh, what do you know about those ones? If it, well, that's, yeah. what we're seeing now in the modern era is a lot of artists do this kind of art now. So you've got to be careful when you see a geoglyph. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily ancient. I mean, there's a lot in England that are like from the 1920s and 30s. And that's what made me think of crop circles because I thought, hmm, maybe they have this because there's, there's more there than anywhere else except for Peru. And so that I'm aware of. I mean, I could be wrong. But... It's like maybe that's a form of art that they, they've always kind of had because you can make crop circles 
you know, tomping down. The, you do it. You make a negative impression on the on the terrain. So but it's, it's almost like a public art exhibit is right. kind of the thing to be careful about rather than a larger right. cultural marker. But within all of these, there is something called the Uffington White Horse, which is on a hill. It's not on a flat surface. It's on a hill. And it was created between 1380 and 550 B.C. by Sto- uh, Neolithic people, which we talked about Stonehenge. Again, I was like, that's amazing that... So somewhere else this was going on, too, where they were making these. And there is a... And a lot of them are horses. Of course, in the uh, South America, in the Peruvian ones, you can kind of date it because there's no horses and because horses weren't reintroduced to North America or South America until the Spanish came. Mm -hmm. So, of course, you're not going to see horses before that because they didn't know what a horse looked like. Um, There's something called the Westbury White Horse that's actually on the Salisbury Plain. Of course, why do we know the Salisbury Plain? Because that's where Stonehenge is. But there's no, they don't think, they think this one was much later, like mm-hmm. in the 800s or something, 80s, someone did it to honor King Alfred. And they're not even sure if that date is, and that's a problem with some of these. It's hard to date them, whether they're new or, I mean, newish. They weren't made by ancient people. So, um, and so many mysteries with that. But it, like I said, it wasn't until recently they discovered the Paracas culture and they, they, well, they knew the Paracas culture. They didn't know they were doing geoglyphs like the Nazcas did. So in that area, that was knowledge that was known, that this is what we do. Um, I guess the... I, I like the one theory where the guy comes up with, like, three different things because <laughs> it's kind of like hedging the bets on all of them. Well, but, that's reasonable when it comes to... Like, and we thought of that with Stonehenge, too, mm-hmm. that there were multi-uses for these things. Yeah. And that's, I mean, when it comes to these, when it comes to geoglyphs, these ancient things, we really can't pinpoint exactly what it could be because there's so many different possibilities. Um, Yes. And really, like with all of these kind of unexplained mysteries, there's a reason that they've been unexplained for thousands of years. And it's one of those things where technology is you know help discover more about them yes but they don't discover why Why? exactly and Uh and thanks i mean thank god for all the advances we're seeing now in archaeology with carbon dating with drones because you can send drones into deep jungles and find things i mean Mm -hmm. people are finding stuff all the time that was lost for hundreds thousands of years that but i think it really tells you it's it like stonehenge likes the pyramids like anything I think it's people dealing with the environment they live in. And this is, they're expressing it some way. Some way we may not ever understand because, you know, we weren't there. We may have a totally different. But some of the people that currently live in Peru, the Andeans, uh, one of them, because they still talk about these lines and it's still part of their life. But they made a good point. They say, you know, Andeans look at time differently than Westerners do. And I think other cultures do this too. We look at time linearly. They look at it cyclical. So to them, this is not ancient history to them. Mm -hmm. It's ancient history to us because we're going in one direction. And so I thought that was kind of interesting. But but yeah, like other mysteries, the why will probably be debated. Now, like I said, I think for a lot of these, there's more earthbound um, theories that we can use. Mm -hmm. I don't think we normally have to just step right off to the ancient aliens. 
Um, but you're right. I mean, there's all kinds of different uh, things that cultures have built that we, like we said, we know how they did it now, but we'll probably never really know why. Yeah. Maybe it was to propitiate the gods. It could have been. Maybe. I mean, maybe that was part of the function. So. So. In, in the regards to unknown mysteries of what the whys and the what's, what what are we going to cruise through next time, Scott? Yeah, I'm kind of I've been uh, I've been kind of uh, mining this vein for the last couple of episodes, and then I thought of another one. I, I thought of, you know, people always talk about one of the most famous. Egyptian pharaohs, and we were just talking about Egypt, is King Tut, of course. Mm-hmm. And you know, people always talk about the curse of King Tut. And then that's sort of a general narrative of these pharaoh curses that were put on these, on these uh, tombs when they were discovered. And so I want to talk about the curse of King Tut's tomb because it's always been a story that all these people that were involved in died right away after they had done it by all these weird means. But we're gonna, we're gonna, I'm gonna look at that and say, w- see whether it's true or not, or whether there are rational explanations that these people just died from natural things. Yeah, well, I'll look forward to seeing that next time. Hey, hey, Scott, are you, are mm-hmm. you ready for our live show? I'm sorry, live? Yeah, show? our our live show on April 29th. I'm not familiar with that. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, we're doing a live show okay. at the Southwest Library mm-hmm. in Kenosha, April 29th, 1 p.m. Okay. You're yeah. going to be there, right? I'll, I'll try to be there. Yes. I, I hope <laughs> you're going to be there. <laughs> All right. Do come to our live show. We're going to be going live and cruising through history with you all. Plenty of time for questions. We hope to see you there.